Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, I'm joined by the Game King himself, Sean Sands. Hello. And we also welcome Imperial Star, like Games Beat's Imperial Starfighter pilot, Rowan Kaiser. <laughs> Hello. I'm definitely one of the good ones. <laughs> just, just an honorable TIE pilot. Yes, I've tried to maintain order in a galaxy that is filled with chaos. <laughs> so... That was definitely tipping our hand a bit. Uh, we are going to go all the way back to 1994 uh, on tonight's show. W- a mere 15 years ago. Just mm. 15 short years. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> Not that long ago, really. It's, I remember it like yesterday, plus another 10 years on top of that. <laughs> it is weird. Uh, as I was thinking about this show... I do remember this year particularly well because this is the year I started collecting gaming magazines. And so mm. I like 1994 exists as a year in gaming for me as a series of like PC gamer and computer gaming world covers. Um, and some of those games uh, are, are on this list. But Rowan, I think one of the things you and I that, that jumped out at both of us when we were sort of considering this year is that. Perhaps even more than 1993, 1994 is like when it feels in games like the future is now. The future is happening and there are games from the before time that are still coming out. And then there's what we thought gaming would look like moving forward. Yeah. uh, So like one of the things that we've talked about is that there's this big divide in the mid 1990s, especially with PC games where uh, a whole lot of old genres kind of get burned down and new ones come up and that's based on tech and business changes which uh, the main tech ones are the mouse becomes increasingly important for everything um, and you get 3D graphics and you get CD-ROMs to give games tons of space to do things like add voices and uh, you know orchestral quality music and so with the games here we start getting into definitely seeing those 3d graphics become increasingly important definitely seeing games that are taking advantage of going fully voiced or fully movie in some cases um one good one um and you also see some games here that are some really fascinating disasters in terms of how they are attempting to uh use this new technology to make new kinds of games and just utterly failing miserably. So you have you have the new here, plus it is sort of the last gap. I don't know if last gap is, is quite the right word, but you have uh, a bunch of games that are like of the old form that are providing that last little bit of uh, creativity that you tend to get towards the end of generations. Um, this is, you know, three, four years into the 16-bit console generation, so that's it's fully matured at that point. Um, and PC developers are getting very used to mice and CDs and increasingly 3D graphics. So, yeah, uh, this is a really interesting transitional year, and like most every year from 93 to 2000, you can make an argument it's the greatest year in gaming history. <laughs> I, think, I think you mentioned the sound, and that's the thing that really stands out to me about a lot of these games before... 
um, before we recorded, I was watching just a bunch of videos of some of these games to kind of wrap my head back into it, and XCOM in particular. Um, and I don't want to I don't want to tip the hand too early necessarily, but XCOM in particular just had amazing sound. Is like I, I pulled that that footage up, and there's you know there's voiceover which was brand new, but there was also this really interesting sort of layered atmospheric sound design that was going on, which was brilliant for the time. Um, you know, and and you know some of those like Warcraft the the like our fundamental sounds of Warcraft. I was just listening to yeah. all these things. And of course, you know, yeah, there's a ton of stuff here. And I think like this year, as much as any I can think of was just an evolution in the way that games were heard, which is really kind of a cool thing. Like there was, there was a lot of, lot of evolution right through this time period. And I think 94 was sort of um, a big, big, big part of that. Yeah. Uh, another one of my, my, favorites from the time this year jagged alliance has mm. you know these 50 different mercs with different personalities and different voiceovers and different barks and it's just like a level of personality that has not been seen in gaming before like at any level pretty much and uh uh it took till jagged alliance too for like the whole thing to really come together i feel but that still was a very notable and fascinating game it's weird talking about this. It, you kind of have made, have made me realize. I think I'm nostalgic for an era where it's not that I'm nostalgic for putting in a new sound blaster, right? Like, okay, yes, the thought of <laughs> doing that does get me excited. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, damn, that'd be great, right? Like, ooh, what, like an Outage Pro. Tell me mm. more, or something like that. <laughs> uh, so yes, it turns out I am nostalgic for like a new sound card, but I think the the bigger point here for me listen like listening to you guys talk about this it reminds me of one of the things i enjoyed about this era is that it is a period where sound is a selling point sound is mm-hmm. a thing that yeah. in order to justify the purchases of these cards and in order to uh and those cards are what permitted uh, a, a great deal of audio design uh, in games, you had to pay a great deal of attention to it. You had to kind of show where people's money was going. Uh, you know, the panning, the the panning sound effects of uh, Starfighters in the Tie in in the X Wing mm-hmm. Tie Fighter series uh, was mind blowing at the time. And there's an element like yes, games can sound a great deal better now uh sound quality is like through the roof but the strange thing is i i feel like in a lot of modern games sound design doesn't get the same attention that it used to that there are fewer and fewer games where i hear hear a mix or i hear like a a surround sound mix of a game and think Damn, this really like puts me in the experience, right? This this really uh, captures the imagination in the way that some of the sort of choice tidbits from this period really succeeded in doing. Uh, maybe this is just me still nursing a grudge against Red Dead Redemption Two for having a <laughs> terrible. Hey, I'm right there with you. I'm fine with that. Just a do terrible that. audio mix. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I I do feel like there was something about this period where because we are specifically selling sound we are also kind of emphasizing it making it a point of interest 
in games in a way that I'm not sure I'm not sure it is anymore. Uh, well, well, there's there's a really good example here um, that uh, is one of my favorite sounding games ever, and is probably the main reason anyone remembers it, other than its name, and that is Sid Meier's Colonization, mm-hmm. um, which was famous for it soundtrack being a bunch of colonial era or what we perceive as colonial era ditties uh done in like whatever the best sound card they had available was and this is another interesting thing about this this era is that um the sound is different depending on which card you're actually using so like there have been times when i've gone to look up the soundtrack for i think we did this in 93 but uh quest for glory 4 and like I remember the guitar sound in a very different way than most of the YouTube videos have it because they're recorded with, you know, a sound blaster and I had a Proteo Spectrum or they have, they're recorded with a Roland and I had the, you know, the sound blaster. It's, it, these things can sound completely different. And then you can get into with the, uh, the consoles, the difference between the, the Genesis and the uh, Super Nintendo's like chipset uh, that makes once sound designers start realizing how well this works they uh start designing game soundtracks around the strength of each of their models and you know two of my favorite game soundtracks from the console era here uh final fantasy 6 and uh fantasy star 4 wait what's fantasy star 4 here did i miss that mm. I, I might see put that it. on a. That but that's a good. Yeah, that's a good pull if it, if it belongs in there. That's another classic to go into our 94 bin yeah where did that go um <laughs> I might have been, oh yeah, I was looking at 93 accidentally oh. for a couple minutes, so that's why I remembered it. But yeah, Final Fantasy VI, and, you know, the Lion King on the Genesis, I can transition very smoothly here because that was a great sounding game using mm-hmm. the, the, the ditties from the uh, uh, movie, which had a popular song or two. Right, and yeah, one or two. And of course, I mean, TIE Fighter also had uh, some modeled versions of John Williams' soundtrack. I think one of the things that's interesting to me thinking about sound specifically is this is really sort of the tip of the iceberg, but really it's one of the last years that particularly PC games are primarily on floppy disk, right? Mist is 1993. Um, I, I forget when seventh guest and some of these others are but you see i mean within the next couple of years you see a transition to cd which again like immediately changes the sound as well um just in the sense that you can store so much more sound information and and kind of produce it in in a different way um so i mean it, it it i only mention that because it's impressive to me some of these games colonization xcom um wing commander 3 tie fighter just the amount of quality and interesting uh, sounds they produce still in that floppy disk era, um, which is kind of beginning. It's not coming to an end yet, but is on the precipice of doing so. Like when these Windows 95 is a year away and that sort of changes the game. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I got distracted from my colonization thing. The other thing I was going to mention in addition to the different sound cards is that colonization also got a re-release or a remake in the um, Civilization 4 engine like a decade or so ago. And... I got oh, that. Oh, God, that's right. It did. I had completely and forgotten that. The music in that game is like <laughs> CD quality orchestral <laughs> no. sounding. And I'm just like, nope, not interested in this at all. <laughs> Goodbye. If it, if it does not sound like it's coming out of my tinny little speakers, this is not colonization. <laughs> well, this is a really good point, actually. So TIE Fighter, 
Uh, a couple things that are interesting about the release of TIE Fighter uh, this year is that basically this is there's like a quiet generational shift that happens in the middle of this year with PC games. And arguably like we get our first immediate like HD remaster uh, with TIE fighter, (laughs) because remember at the start of that year, they released on floppy disks. Mm -hmm. And I think like within a year they had put out the CD ROM version of TIE fighter, the, the collector's CD uh, version of yeah. TIE Fighter. Yeah, 95, 95 TIE Fighter received the collector CD-ROM. So yeah, a year later. Right. <laughs> and that's where they add super VGA graphics mm-hmm. uh, to TIE Fighter. Uh, they add, uh, you know, I th- no, the original had, uh, I don't know what the hell Gorad shading is, but it was important that a game had it. Damn it. <laughs> it was but really the- critical at the time. <laughs> the thing the thing you have to remember about the mid 90s is we all pretended to understand and have opinions about graphics rendering technology and lighting techniques something which has not changed in video games <laughs> in, in any now? way whatsoever dear god it was a, yeah it was a different it was a strange and different time where people <laughs> pretended to be hi-fi freaks about things they lacked the expertise to process but I was trying to be sarcastic there, and instead it just came out angry because I didn't use not in the right way. So, good job, Rowan. Uh, but the thing about TIE Fighter, uh, so the collector CD-ROM comes out and it like has the higher resolution graphics. Both versions have uh, this this music, which, Sean, you, you, you mentioned that it uses the John Williams score, but that's not entirely true. No, it, it uses, uses some themes. of the late motifs, yes. It's yeah, absolutely. But it mixes them dynamically in the missions. Uh, basically, like the score of a of a Tie Fighter mission is sort of changed on the fly as different things are happening. So when uh, you know, I'm sure whenever new Rebel ships arrived, you had the Rebel Alliance like theme music play really quickly, uh, but in sort of this rapid tempo, uh, anxiety inducing uh, version of it because it means hostile ships are uh, you know entering the entering the combat area. Um, but what's interesting is years later. When this 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 I think is is an example of kind of the disdain or or disrespect sometimes shown to the the audio engineering of this period when they released Tie Fighter and X Wing but sort of done up in the X Wing versus Tie Fighter uh, engine. Do you remember they they, they released like final Ultimate yep. Collector's editions of those yep. games in this other engine? Which didn't work at all because it's also a different flight model. It's a different like you can't you can't build those games onto X Wing versus Tie Fighter. Uh, it just it just doesn't work at all. But the other thing they did was they gave us they gave us those uh, CD quality orchestral uh, John Williams tracks, but they just played through the mission right and. It was striking the degree to which that in 1994, yeah, it was a MIDI MIDI soundtrack built around an idea of what a John Williams score sounded like, and it was one of the most like powerful and evocative things I'd ever seen. It still is, really. Like I, I went back and played these games a few years ago. It still is one of the best uses of music uh, in, in a video game I've ever played. But like 15 years later, the idea was, yeah, isn't it just better to? hear uh the asteroid field chase 
in, in CD sound looped 20 times? And the answer is no. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Because one of the things, I mean, and you've played it recently, but one of the things that I feel like I, I remember and kind of looking up stuff on it was the the themes were were flipped, right? When they were doing, when when TIE Fighter originally released, like the, the way that they organized it, like all the things that were hero themes yes. in just the soundtrack became bad things. And all the things that were like the, the, the uh, Imperial March became like a good thing. And like so they had to, like you, you have to design that in a way so that that makes sense in the context of the game where you hear the Imperial March and like, hell yeah, all right, I'm, I'm up, let's do this thing. And you hear the Rebel theme and you're like, boo, this is bad. Like that's, you can't just play the soundtrack to get there. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was one of the many things that I, that I hated about that remaster. But you're right, I'd forgotten that they basically also uh, rearrange yeah. those themes so that the Imperial March turns into this sort of inspiring, uh, you know, major key, like, damn, job well done, right. gents. We sure <laughs> did destroy that medical convoy uh, trying to reach the rebel base. Who could have predicted that this podcast would quickly disintegrate into TIE Fighter worship? Like, there's, there was no guessing that. There was no way to guess. Let's go pick something. All right, Rowan, you're right. You make a very good point. There were I'm other here games. to defend Wing Commander, man. Oh, the, I love Wing Commander. Let's let's die. go. I like Wing Commander two more than three. So whatever. Well, yes, you guys could have your fun. Well, we we talked about Wing Commander. So this is a good point, though. We talked about Wing Commander two. I think on one of the previous shows we did uh, about think, the voice. I think the speech two pack. was a. Oh yeah, the speech pack might have been. There might have been mm-hmm. like the a complete version of it on CD or something for the ninety three. Boy, was the speech pack not. <laughs> so, just a quick aside, uh, Wing Commander 2, I bought, again, because I bought everything late in this era because my PC sucked. Uh, I came to Wing Commander 2 late. Getting it to work on my sound card was a nightmare, but I was hell-bent on getting that speech pack. I had paid for the final like collector's edition. I was going to get the Wing Commander 2 speech pack. Uh, boy, did I regret that. Because just the most gormless characterizations uh, of these... Uh, of these of these heroes of mine uh really really took me took me out of it but uh rowan i mean wing commander 3 is this is, is this sort of oh, your, your pinnacle yeah, well, no i i would like wing commander 2 but wing commander 3 is an interesting one if we're still talking about the general nature of things because yeah. uh wing commander 3 was the future of video games it was the fully interactive movie they went and hired uh, Mark Hamill, who is from the most famous space movies ever and definitely had an extremely successful career for the 10 years between that and Wing Commander 3. Um, <laughs> You're on point with your sarcasm tonight. I really just want to take a moment and appreciate that. <laughs> well, the, the other one I messed up, but that one I got right. You got, okay, you they did Mal- Malcolm McDowell at peak Malcolm yes. McDowell. Um, he was like a year or two away from doing first contact yep. at this point, I think. And uh, um, they also had uh, Ginger Lynn Allen, who was famous for some reason. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, th- so this it was this idea that the whole point of games is moving towards fidelity. And this is an ideology that has never really gone away, but was like peaking when CDs were becoming in vogue, peaking when 3D graphics were becoming in vogue, peaking when sound could be made orchestral, like TIE Fighter got turned into. And by and large, it was a dismal failure, particularly the uh, 
interactive movie aspect of it other than <laughs> wing commander three and a handful of other games like gabriel knight two and uh um Oh, that's about it, I think. Um, (laughs) The idea of the interactive movie just kind of fell off a cliff because most of the games were just, like, shoddy, shitty movies that had really bad puzzles, too. And it became, like, almost instantly, maybe even as this was happening, but after Wing Commander 3, definitely, uh, just interactive movie or a, a... the the cd games that came on like 20 different cds became a byword for laziness in the way that like uh yeah yeah um we games just being churned out of of boring garbage were like 10 years ago um or the way that asset flips on steam get called out like it was just a really really bad genre or form actually because you could do any genre in it um except for wing commander but this starts bleeding into strategy games to some extent like you have red alert which starts taking advantage of having real actors a couple years later and becomes famous well, you for say how real actors. entertainingly bad <laughs> so i'm just gonna I, that was my attempt at yeah. sarcasm carry on I'll, I'll do better next time guys don't worry about it so yeah there were some bits and pieces where this like bled through to strategy games but in general you have this like giant road that everyone thought was the future and ended up really 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 not being the future and instead you have other things here like what is more important to video games these days wing commander 3 or xcom and the answer is against what everyone would have guessed xcom you know, it's it's interesting because my first reaction, like when I pulled up the list of 94 games and I saw Wing Commander 3 there, I was like, oh, yeah, Wing Commander 3. And what I realized very slowly is that my defining single me- memory of Wing Commander 3 is its opening cutscene. And I couldn't tell you anything else about the rest of the game except occasionally Malcolm McDowell shows up and that was pretty cool too. And it felt like, it felt a little bit like being a... a being a bowling ball thrown on a very long bowling lane. Like you get going, but, and you're like, yeah, we're going. And you just eventually stop and you realize nobody pushed you any more than that one time at the very beginning. And, and then I, I just, I just stopped. And, um, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm kind of with you there. Like my, I mean, my favorite wing commander game in memory in just the way that I remember it and we'll never play it again is privateer. Um, but like, I can't tell you, I can tell you all sorts of things about playing that game and how you could just spin through an asteroid field and be fine. And, you know, just kind of fighting and trading and doing all these things that I think were cooler than they probably were in practice. I couldn't tell you a single thing about how wing commander three played, except that it was cool that Mark Hamill was there sometimes talking to a porn star. And that was like, Ooh, like it was 94. Like, that was the same year that one of my favorite games of the year that I'm ashamed to admit, uh, Ultima 8 Pagan, um, which I grew to realize was not a very good game, but liked it very much at the time, uh, came out. And so there I was don't the... even have that here yet? I don't think you no. have that. I just know that. I just I looked it up earlier. Um, and, yeah. and like there was no, a it big, definitely is. It, there was a big stink because it had a pentagram on the box art, and I remember like bringing it home and and both that and Doom that year, and my my parents just being very disapproving. Like I really <laughs> I don't think this is okay. I think you have to stop bringing these into our house. I'm like it's fine don't like a typical i was 21 in 1994 and i'm like yeah i still live at home but i can bring a pentagram into the house if i want shut up dad (laughs) well they were right about ultimate age i mean they were right for the wrong reasons (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> there was I mean, partially. What is platforming? Never mind. Fine. Well, we we could go into some other disappointments here because, sure. uh, like I said, this is this is a year where people are transitioning and trying new things. And Ultimate Eight is like an attempt by. EA, now that they have full control over Origin, mm-hmm. to push RPGs into the next dimension in a literal sense, with uh, it being a fully 3D game, like right before Mario 64. Um, well, no, that was Ultima 9. Ultima 8 was still in the 2D engine from Ultima 7. Ultima 9 was the one that was 3D. No, no, no. You're thinking of uh, Serpent Isle. Ultima 8 was three dimensional. It was just really clumsy. Oh, was are it you, just clumsy? I'm, are you sure? I feel like Ultimate I'm looking, was the like same look at this video, man. Like if this is 3D, then they're locking camera perspective. Yeah, they were. Okay. okay. I don't think I ever realized that. Oh, so those are sprites on a 3D field? It it's something I mean, I could be I could be misremembering something somewhere. Ultima nine was the one where they went full 3D and it was garbage and it was trash and it didn't even run because it was but Ultimate was broken for a variety of reasons. There was a there was an Ultima thing that came out around the same time as Mario 64, and people were like, why isn't Ultima getting credit for this? And I might be misremembering that it had something to do with the Ultima 8 engine, but that's really not the point. Yeah, not the point. Um, the, the point is that this was an action game. This was an RPG where you control a single character instead of a party of characters. It oh, was is this the one the, where they were like, oh my god, you've made... They, right, because this, yes. this share an engine with Crusader No Remorse? Yes, I think so. I think that's. Yes. I think that's that's on on track. Yeah, and th- th- that was weird because when the Crusader games came out, people were shocked that this engine could actually make a decent game because it's so bad in Ultima Eight. Uh, but yeah, it was Ultima was you know the greatest mm-hmm. RPG series anywhere at the time. I mean, you could maybe make an argument for Final Fantasy, but I think Final Fantasy was generally following Ultima's in Ultima's footsteps until this year. Until that, uh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, this game comes out. EA has like fully taken over with their EA ness twenty five years ago and turned it into what they think is going to be a big selling technological masterpiece. And it has like almost none of what makes Ultima great. The music, which had been so great in previous Ultimas, is largely not there. The combat is action oriented in a really clumsy way there's platforming until they release a patch that literally removes like the third of the game that was platforming um there was like a jumping thing where you had to like the jumping wait thing for oh moving. my god oh you had so to like bad. wait for moving platforms to get there and you could like miss them and fall off when they released the patch this is how bad it was mm-hmm. when they released the patch they just froze all the platforms and all you did was double click on them and you would automatically jump and never, ever, ever, ever fall because people hated this so much. <laughs> I've never played the fully jumping version of it because I played like the CD version that came out a year later. Mm-hmm. With the patch uh, on it? Right. Yeah, with the patch on it. Uh, so yeah, this this was just a disaster that helped nuke role-playing games uh just off the face of the earth for computers yeah, for away, the next two years. Until Baldur's yeah, Gate, the, right? They're they're done at that Fallout. point. Fallout, please. Okay, I please. I, I'm sorry. The, the thing is, has there been? I, I don't don't want to digress too much, but I I would be pressed to think of a greater fall from grace than Ultima Seven and Ultima Seven to Serpent Isle to Ultima Eight. Like just the. Just like on, the, I, one of the greatest games help. of all time to one of the most disappointing follow-ups. I need I need help from y'all. 
This okay. is like I know I know we don't have a ton of time, but I need to understand why people love Ultima a little bit here. Because for me, there's a couple things that I associate with the series. One, a level of freedom that I was not prepared as a young boy to handle. <laughs> Uh, Maybe when you're older, Rob. Yeah, right. Like, I remember, I was a 21 year old man at this point, so I could handle it. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> like I am a tween, and <laughs> Ultima is the game that, for some reason, like there's a million houses you can go into and just start stealing everyone's shit, um, and to no clear end. But you just like I was basically just like looting homes, and I, like, I will, I will. I will make this statement, and then I will decide if I agree with myself. Ultima <laughs> 7 was the Skyrim of its day. No, oh, that's easily defensible. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think it's, I think it's that, right? It's, it's just like the degree of freedom and the, the, the depth of the way the different system mechanics in Ultima 7 worked was what was really, really impressive. It was an entirely new way to approach what had been fairly stock standard, um, even in Ultima. Like, I, I love Ultima 4. I love Ultima 2. Like, I, I love the older ones, but Ultima 7 was such a shift. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think it was just a really huge leap that completely redefined the way that people who really enjoyed that genre um, could look at it. Um, Except it was actually accurate to say that, unlike Skyrim, where right, it was yes, just people yes. who only bought <laughs> one RPG a year. Yeah, I think that's fair, uh, too. But yeah, uh, there's also a massive aesthetic leap with Ulti all of the Ultimas tended to be pushing the boundaries of what was capable in whatever time period they were in with ultima 7 uh you have this leap forward that's like one of the first major games to say no we know how to use the mouse it's going to make it easier and not harder to actually play this game um and it was like this fully seamless gorgeous super vga world that you could wander through in all these ways and this is just ultima 7 like the other ultimas are great in their own way although ultima 7 is the one that you would still go and play yeah uh if you would like to hear more about ultima 7 I was recently on the Us Gamer Acts of the Blood God podcast when they were doing that in their top 25 RPGs of all time. And they had it in the top 10, unlike certain other publications that have never heard of games before 2000. <laughs> so, uh, so good I, job, US Gamer. Good. I won't call you Us Gamer again today. <laughs> I feel like there's something extremely specific being subtweeted there, and I'm not... You know what? We'll move on. Oh, no, I, I just think it's funny to call them Us Gamer. That's that's the entirety of it. Uh, so hold on, Wing Commander Three. Quick <laughs> question. That's made by Origin. Was Origin still independent at this point? No, Origin had been taken over by EA, and with Wing Commander, it went in interesting directions, and with Ultima, it went in bad, bad. directions. Yes, yeah, very bad. I mean, they, some of the ideas were interesting for Pagan, but as a whole, it was just not. I mean, the execution was completely off, though. Right? Like, there's a lot of like the. The, the progression of the story, the interestingly, the progression of the story and the progression of the idea with Pagan wasn't the problem, right? It was, there's an interesting concept here that is set up in Ultima 7 about this guardian that is able to kind of dominate, you know, execute their will onto entire worlds and planes of existence. 
And so this idea that the champion of the world that defies the Guardian is cast into a world where the Guardian has ever already taken over, like, I was into that. That is cool. I want to play that game. That sounds amazing. Um, it was an utter failure of execution. It was taking all the wrong cues from what made Ultima 7 and Serpent Isle great, um, taking none of the things that were actually great, and you know, not none of the things, that's an exaggeration, but not enough of the things that made those games great and putting it in and then adding stuff that was just superfluous and not very, you know, connected to the world. Um, so segueing into strategy games, yes. the other grand disaster from this year, which is, was significantly more of a betrayal for me because I was, I was getting it at the time, had my pre-order, was super excited, was Outpost. Oh boy. This was like this is a famous and infamous failure. Yes. Like this was year like years later, it was like Outpost was shorthand across games press, at least like press the covered strategy games as like a thing to avoid, uh a thing to bear in mind when reading preview coverage. I never played Outpost because at that point I've been like by the time I became aware of it. It was already so radioactive that, like, you knew whatever it was, you didn't want to get anywhere near it. What was the sales pitch? And then why are you so scarred? <laughs> so the sales pitch was it's basically surviving Mars, which uh, what I brought up to the developers when I was interviewing them. Fortunately, they didn't realize they should be offended. <laughs> um, <laughs> But humanity has launched their first interstellar colony. I don't remember if it was like an Alpha Centauri thing where it was like the end of humanity or whatever. But you are like the first colony outside of Earth. And you're, you know, 50 people or whatever on the ship that I'm pretty sure you design the ship so you can sort of design, fig figure out what you're bringing on your, your journey or whatever. Another way that it, its systems fall apart later. Um, and... Uh, the pitch was that they're using actual data from actual NASA scientists where they will tell you or they will like have these planets that are what scientists believe that the planets are going to be like when humanity goes. They're going to be using the technologies that are these our initial colonists in 20 years or whatever are going to be using. These are this is going to be like a hardcore simulation and a classic strategy game and coming on CD or, like, a ton of floppy disks, but it was going to use the very best, the peak of graphical fidelity, whatever, to combine with the simulation to be, like, you know, and this is something we've talked about before, the space game. Um, and the previews were gushing. They were, like, just absolutely sensational it was a killer pitch because uh, you have this idea of fidelity you have this idea of space colonization you have like this is also the year um that we, we talked about this uh the 93 show we're not entirely certain when exactly SimCity 2000 was released it seems like it might have been 93 on mac and then 94 on pc but this is this is the year of SimCity 2000 becoming like super popular um, so this is also when city builders were were becoming like the genre of potentially the future or like one that one that could sell a whole shit ton. Um, so yeah, this was just absolutely a killer pitch. Got like gorgeous previews using uh, fantastic art, um, and then the game came out and it was broken at a level that I have almost never seen any release game be broken. 
um, strategy games, most games really rely on feedback. You you act in some way, and the game tells you what you did. And you know, depending on the sort of game, it'll get into how much detail or tell you what you get did was good or bad. But there is like some kind of reaction to the buttons that you press. It's sort of baked into the idea of the game. Uh, that's why it's not a screensaver. Um, in Outpost, there was almost no feedback. There was like you just did stuff, and then you press next turn, and then who knows? Like like random results. Uh, not even random results. It just didn't tell you. You didn't know anything. Like So you go on this thing, and I think by default, you go on this colonization journey, and by default, you have 50 colonists on your, on your ship. And unless you build the right level of life support or whatever it was, you would lose one colonist per turn. There was nothing that popped up until turn 50 saying that you were out of colonists. <laughs> on turn 50, it would say your last colonist has died. That's an interesting Which discovery to suddenly make. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the manual included all these things about, okay, if you're building these buildings and you want to make sure that your people can use them together, you need to build roads from one to another. The game did not actually have roads when it shipped. I think a patch like two years later eventually added roads. But uh, yeah, this is, this is the level of incompetence that we're seeing. And I don't think I've ever seen from a major developer. This was Sierra, right when Sierra was starting to just collapse into a black hole, but like before we realized that this was a company that could, be, could have been trusted almost implicitly that was just getting nuked into a pile of garbage. Um, and this, this is also an interesting road not taken, if I'm taking a step back and looking a little more historically, because like... One of the things that happens in the mid-90s is that the genres that were, like, guaranteed winners, adventure games and role-playing games and war games, maybe not guaranteed winners, but not inherently losers just by their existence, in the mid-90s, they became much harder sells, and they're replaced by first-person shooters, real-time strategy games, um, and that kind of thing. And then, like, eventually RPGs managed to come back, uh, Outpost offered a road not taken here where perhaps you could see like city builders or science fiction games become that because it was supposed to be that level of quality and it was just, uh, I, I can't think of a bigger disaster in PC gaming history definitely and possibly just all gaming. I remember like, I, I was looking up some stuff on, on Outpost. Uh, I had forgotten that the US PC gamer uh was like at the center of one of the review scandals around this because they like reviewed it on the basis of preview code and uh at least according to wikipedia but i did remember that there were there were reasons years later because remember there's always this thing was which was which where did your loyalties lie us pc gamer or computer gaming world and one of the things that would sort of be thrown at us pc gamer was the outpost review Right, that well, you can't trust those guys. They're, uh, you know, they're in the company's pocket. Look at Outpost. Uh, but I, I think it's more useful to think about how much more common it was in this era for games to, you know, in some ways, uh, games had to be a little bit more 
complete, a little more constructed in this era because once it was on a disc, uh, you know, you couldn't easily propagate patches. But by that same token, if a game came out and there were there were bugs that had not been caught, there were features that had not been correctly implemented, you were basically hosed. In 1994, I don't think I can get a patch. I'm not sure. Like, I don't think my house had internet no. in 1994. And yeah, the most likely thing is that when the CD version comes out a year later, that has the patches included. Right. I mean, even if you had internet at the time, like there's no centralized location, right? What are you going to do? Log into CompuServe and be like, well, I guess I'll go to the patch section of CompuServe yes. today. I mean, okay, fine. But still, like you had to be a <laughs> you had to be a deeply sophisticated user to do that. It was Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so Rowan, yes, everybody else pretty much no. Uh, this also reminds me the game that we're almost certainly going to declare the best game of this year, at least in strategy gaming, XCOM has one of the most hilarious bugs of all time where um, no matter what difficulty you select at the start, there was like an adaptive difficulty piece of code in there that would automatically set it to the lowest difficulty no matter what you did. <laughs> so everyone who played the original XCOM played it on beginner. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> that is beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, I think. Let's see. There is. There is. Um, I don't have a great transition. I just want to talk about Wing Commander three for one second. Let's though. let's get back into Wing Commander. Let's do <laughs> just that. Look, look. <laughs> just do what you want, Rob. This Here's, is your show right now. You take it where you want to go. Here's the thing. I will say that in the midst of a lot of bad, like ambitious but ill-conceived ideas for how to like modernize a franchise i think one of the things that does end up working in commander three's favor is that chris roberts was dying to make a game like this from from the jump right that wing commander had always tried to be a movie the earliest games had fucking letterboxing on the cutscenes. so it is interesting. Wing Commander 3, I think, is interesting because I think it is the fulfillment of Chris Roberts' vision, like creative vision, mm -hmm. his ambitions, before the scope of them changed, right? Like, after Wing Commander 3, he is beginning to, like, he genuinely thinks he's going to make the jump into Hollywood. Uh, Wing Commander 3 is kind of his directorial debut, and he's, he's ready for the next step. And that basically ends with the Wing Commander movie, uh, which, by the way, I will argue Oof. is good bad. Oh, it it's is... delightfully bad. Like the Kilrathi are hilariously bad. I went to that. I went to that damn movie opening day in the theater, and I was the only person in there. And when I left, I'm like, "Well, I get it. I get why I was the only guy here." <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess the rest of the world was right about this. Can you imagine being in? By the way. Can you imagine, just put yourself for a moment in, well, I guess it would have been like 92 probably at this point, 93. Put yourself in Chris Roberts' head the moment he gets like the the call from somebody who says, yeah, Mark Hamill said, yes, he's going to be in your video game. <laughs> well, I want you to just imagine, because you will know no greater joy. That is that is the happiest person that's ever lived at the moment he gets the cast that he wanted for, for that game. You know, and I'll say this. I would bet you, like, he is okay to work with because a lot of these people were happy to work with him again. 
Yeah. Despite the fact that his projects are ridiculous. I think, like, there's a guy who has, he, here's the thing, uh, here's my take on Chris Roberts, who, like, I get it. Like, he has, he clearly has a vision. He clearly has a thing that he wants to create. He is willing to sell anything to get there. Like, it was company, sure. You know, like, uh, millions and millions of dollars to, to Kickstarter and various other things. Absolutely. But, like, passion, like, I, there's never a moment. He's sort of like, he's like the Peter Molyneux of, of sci-fi to me, right? He wants it all. He's got a great idea, and he has got nothing but enthusiasm. Um, but he's going to make some really bad decisions on the way to that. And I think what ends up working in Wing Commander 3's favor is, like, look, I've gone back and I've watched a lot of those cutscenes recently. They are maybe not as good as I remember them being. Uh, Wing Commander, Gasp. Wing yeah. Commander Three is not the polished interactive movie that it was when I was first watching those cutscenes. I was like, <laughs> "Damn, there's a really like you know tense romantic drama playing out between this dude and uh, sorry Christopher Blair and his mechanic and his potential wing Ginger Lynn, like, right? Yep, yeah, that was Ginger Lynn. Yep, and uh, I remembered this being a much more convincing uh like interactive movie than than it actually is like you go back and look at it now uh the performances are awkward people like it like there's scenes where people it's clearly only the first or second take i'm not sure people sat with these lines very long uh certainly they're not used to doing multiple versions of the same scene uh just in different ways um, <laughs> well i mean they're you know, well, used to doing the same ways of the, different ways of the same yeah, scene okay fine <laughs> but you know what i mean is like the, it's it's like there's there's certain crossroads scenes where you're like okay but here christopher blair says this and the result is it just feels like everyone is always reading off a cue card uh, for for a lot of these scenes, and like Mark Hamill's the best one there. Uh, well, mm-hmm. no, sorry, him and Biff. Um, well, John Rhys yeah. Davies tries. Like, he, he does. He, he, he He's makes not in it that much though. No, it's pretty much at the beginning. Well, but I, I think I there's there's other things that are good. I I kind of like. I think it has one of the best settings of the game, which is that in previous editions of the. <sighs> I guess in the second game, you'd sort of been disgraced and exiled to a backwater posting. But the cool thing about Wing Commander 3 is it is kind of the most back-against-the-wall, we-are-losing-this-war game in the series. And you are aboard this kind of... It's no longer uh, top-of-line space carrier. And it has this feeling of just being like, you are on a second-rate ship, uh, you know, in a third-rate fleet, in a war you are in the process of losing, and you have basically been forgotten there. Uh, And I did kind of enjoy, like, in that, with with that as the theme, uh, I actually think it all ends up working in a weird way, including kind of the awkward, bad performances. Like, everything feels shabby and half-assed in that game. Uh, And I think that does kind of lend it this cool feeling of you are taking part in the story, that this is, that, that what you are kind of seeing on the screen 
roughly matches roughly matches kind of the the thing that it is trying to evoke the the feeling that that wing commander 3 is, is trying to evoke uh and pay no attention to the man in the large cat suit thank you for coming to lore reasons wing commander <laughs> <laughs> i'm I mean, so mad that hobbs turned traitor yeah that was bullshit. yeah that that's that was, that's that was really annoying bullshit yes I hate that. And, like, disturbing. And disturbing. Well, you know those Kilrathi just... It oh turns out God. they had to brainwash it because you can't you can't make a cat love you. You can't make a cat turn against its... Okay, now I get it. Yeah, actually, now that I say it, I'm like... <laughs> yeah. You're right. You only thought Hobbs was your friend. Yeah, he, he's sitting here glaring at me. Yeah. The thing I remembered, uh, I, I feel like one of the games here is also, alongside Wing Commander, one of the key transitional games in terms of tr- moving towards a cinematic kind of language, visual, or ideal, or whatever for video games, and that is Final Fantasy VI. And that is actually just like the first 10 minutes of Final Fantasy VI, um, where you start the game... It doesn't immediately give you credits. It gives you this little vignette of like these uh, crappy little imperial soldiers in the snow with this brainwashed girl, and then they talk a little. They say they're going to move on to a different place, which is where the game starts, the town of Narsh. And then it shows them walking from a totally different perspective yep. that is never used in the game again through the snow for the next five or ten minutes as the credits play as the music swells and it's like here this is the point at which video games decide they want to adopt the language of cinema this is the point where they are no longer trying to do board games they are no longer trying to be you know tabletop role-playing games they're no longer trying to be books they are trying to be movies um and it's magnificent in that one uh i'm the, the whole process might not have been ideal, but it's probably inevitable given that we are in a, you know, visual uh, society and films are extremely popular. So, And that uh, scene yeah, is legitimately breathtaking. Like, I remember, yeah, like you described, like, the hearing that score sort of come up as you are sort of getting that over-the-shoulder shot of these people in their mech suits... Uh, walking across this planet. It's, uh, it, it was unbelievable. Also, you're right. The game never again approaches that moment. Like, it has played its most visually and, like, emotionally dramatic card right at the start and never again attempts anything like it, I don't think. Not, 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 I mean, you could maybe say the fish-catching scene, but even that is still within the idea of the video game. The opera was cool. The opera, uh, yeah, the opera obviously is, is it's, but even that, like, they're not trying to do specific movie stuff that's still within the video game yeah. engine in a way that the credits weren't. Um, so, uh, just a side note, in case Final Fantasy VI slash 3 actually came out on a different year when I'm putting this list together, I put games by their Japanese release and not their American release because I feel like that's the best way to talk about them in terms of their technological context. Yep. Agreed. But I think it did come out in 94 here, didn't it? Yeah, it, it prob- Final Fantasy probably did, but some of the others that I, we might or might not get to. I had a Sega Genesis, uh, so like... So you were cool. I liked sports games. <laughs> like... Well, that's just the reason to get the Sega Genesis. Right. Like so, twenty-one years old, completely out of control, 
Sega Genesis kid. Beer in NHL 93 was my whole winter. Bucket of pig's blood for pentagrams. <laughs> Don't even need ID to buy it anymore. Just, just walk in there like I own the place. I'm getting your finest beer. And by hey. finest beer, I do mean bush light. <laughs> You get Earthworm Jim and Beyond Oasis. I got Oasis. Earthworm Jim. Earthworm Jim was amazing. I got Earthworm Jim. And Sonic and Knuckles. Sonic and like, Knuckles. This was, this was still King. a good Genesis yeah, year. Genesis Lion had King. a fine year. Absolutely. I did not get... However, what I did not get was Metroid or Final Fantasy VI. And... Yeah, Super Metroid and Final Fantasy VI might have been a slight cut above. And perhaps Earthbound. I've never clicked with Earthbound, but one day I will. A lot of people absolutely love it. I, so, I haven't played it. There's something that I think we've sort of been circling around here. Which is that this is a year where you can see where games are headed. Mm-hmm. Strategy games, notably, will not be moving on with the rest of gaming. Uh, <laughs> well, except for one. Except for one. But like, I think as I go through this year, it is striking the degree to which this is a space still dominated by tabletop-inspired war games, uh, to an extent, uh, both visually and mechanically. And for the most part, but and even XCOM is certainly not trying to chase the aesthetic uh, zeitgeist of this moment. Like XCOM, it's ambitious. It is a demanding game in its own ways, but it certainly isn't trying to. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you're not going to have Mark Hamill pop up in the middle of XCOM, right? Like, uh, XCOM is trying to... It's ambitious in terms of its uh, open-ended, uh, like, s- like systems-driven design. But everything, But when I looked down a lot of the rest of this list, um, I think the, the, the... Maybe the only other thing that's sort of presaging where things are headed is, uh, you know, is the original Warcraft. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to look at this list because there's... it. it I get where you're coming from that they're not moving forward, but you look at this list and you think about it in terms of the next game that comes either from that that group or in that series. Like Warcraft leads to Warcraft 2, Jagged Alliance leads to Jagged Alliance 2. Um, I mean, Master of Magic is a year before Master of Orion 2, right? Like colonization ends up becoming like the next Sid Meier's game is Civ 2, which like this was the, it's interesting because we were talking about this a little bit before the show started. This was actually the year that I became a strategy gamer. I did not play strategy games prior to this. And it was really XCOM and Master of Magic and to a a lesser extent Warcraft, ultimately Warcraft 2 was the one that really uh, transitioned me over. And uh, like these were the game. These are was that also the... about pissing off your parents, or was there something else? No, no, no. At that point, like I, I, I grew up. I, I, I matured sort of eventually, but no, I, I just like they, the, like they were just in a way. It was about the fact that Mark Hamill wasn't there. Look, I loved Wing Commander three, absolutely right. I mean, I, I played it. I don't remember it, but I played it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I, a Tie Fighter, those were those were my games. Um, but there was something that was clearly different about playing a game like XCOM, uh, like Master of Magic, which really were entirely encompassed in the quality of the game itself, and Warcraft as well. Like they were they were breaking new ground, and they were really 
appealing to me in a way that video games never had before. So I don't think, you know, I, I think it's an interesting year for strategy games um, because not only are there a lot of classics here, but there's a lot of foundation laying here that I think um, I was, I'm really glad this is the moment I sort of, you know, sat up and went, oh, it's kind of cool to walk out of a spaceship and then go, or, you know, a flight ship and shoot down an alien spacecraft and then go up the side buildings with alien weapons. I'm, I could do this more. Uh, or go, you know, poke peons and send them into gold mines. Like, okay, I'm, I'm on board with this. Um, yeah. So it, this, this, to me, this is the year that I began to become a, a strategy gamer. Yeah. Well, the XCOM is worth talking about a little bit yeah. more because we've, yeah. we've sort of obliquely or peripheral, peripherally referenced it, but yeah, I think that's you know one of the dominant games of this year from in the strategy realm. It's more than any of the others. I think the one that people say is just a straight up great game. Still, um, like there is a mod for the original XCOM that people are still playing, like something involving like cybernetic queer pirates that, uh, like. I see random people just suddenly posting screenshots from. It might be a mod for XCOM Terror from the Deep, but it was, you know, this engine. Uh, like, and this was one of... I don't want to say it's the first game to really get systemic design right, but it was one of the first games to really make the systemic design feel like it mattered in a way beyond simply like my own personal gratification like you could tell a story about what you were seeing in XCOM mm -hmm. and yep. you could see that story happening someone could load up the save game and see it so for example one of my last playthroughs which was you know in like probably 99 or 2000 or so the very last mission of the game uh you launch towards the alien base on Mars. Uh, you take, I believe, two... I'm not sure if it's... No, it's not two ships of soldiers. You take one ship of soldiers, but you come out... There's, like, a two-part mission. There's, like, a brief one on the overworld, and then you go down into the actual base itself for the main mission. The soldiers get split up into two halves as you go down into the base. Um, so I do that, and the first thing that happens is... An, Alien launches one of their, like, super grenade things mm -hmm. into one of those things, and the entire half of the crew is just wiped out. So just, like, immediately I have this very nearly crushing defeat, but a couple of my favorite soldiers were the ones who survived and the other one, so I decided to give it a go. And then I, like, slowly drag them through the mission, losing them one by one as they scout out where they're trying to get to, like, the, the headquarters of the alien base. And I don't think he was just my last one guy, but he was uh, the only one who was, like, actually present when he got to the, the final alien that you have to kill, or the final room. I don't remember if it's I might be confusing it with Fallout in terms of are you actually killing something living when you blow it up. But one guy with one plasma rifle, you know, half dead and wounded, like crawls up that elevator and just blows up everything around him to end the fucking game. And I was like, this is magnificent. This is this is the story <laughs> that like, I wanted to have told. <laughs> right, right. It was like, you know, what the end of Mass Effect 3 should have been, something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, 
and uh yeah that that's the sort of stories that people were able to tell about this game they were able to tell tell stories about tossing grenades with like their last five movement points to somebody who had more movement points so that they could like save their squad you know these things that uh were actually visible on the screen as they were happening, even if they were still fairly abstract, like the technology had gotten to the point just enough where it felt like the story in my head was actually the story on the screen. And on that score, I don't think the modern XCOM games have like touched it. I don't think they've tried to. Uh, certainly in terms of overall campaign structure, right? Like there is yeah. a unity of uh, the strategic layer gameplay in the original XCOM and its tactical level and the two things informing and influencing one another and providing useful context for one another that the modern Firaxis remakes have not even really attempted to get at uh, because it's, too, it's you know, it, it, it is a hard thing. Uh, but they sort of opted for slightly more of the, uh, yeah, in general, maybe scripted beats. Well, I think it's also that the style of tactics that they employ is somewhat different. Yeah. The, uh, the tactics of the first two XCOMs were like, you're in a war, your soldiers are going to die. The tactics in uh, the XCOM remakes are you are in a guerrilla war and the goal is that you want to be applying maximum pressure at the point that is easiest to knock over. So what you're doing is you're trying to get overwhelming force at every point you can before the enemy gets overwhelming force to you instead of just having firefights. Um, and that's that's really interesting. Like, I love it, um, but I definitely slightly prefer the other one. And that's why, uh, Rob, you should play The Long War. Once again, we, we're back to that. Uh, yeah, XCOM, XCOM is interesting because it also it demonstrates how tough it is to make a game like that. Like, the thing is, there's there's things about XCOM I love, uh, but Rowan, to that point about it, it feels like you're fighting a war. Mechanically, a lot of that stuff doesn't feel fun, right? Like, yeah. mo- like pushing yeah. a platoon of soldiers around and then having one of them just eat a sniper shot from you know around a blind corner and just get killed in one go it creates dramatic moments and in XCOM you're sort of encouraged to keep playing because hey that's the game right like you know you're gonna get half a platoon of people are gonna disembark from this transport not all of them are going to be standing at the end in fact many of them are gonna be gone um but it's also unwieldy and difficult to manage and as you simplify that you begin creating something that resembles a little bit more, uh, you know, Ron, your, your analogy was a guerrilla war, and I agree with that to an extent, but also as the campaign unfolds, increasingly a superhero team as well. That too. I, you know, you've heard about my X-Men. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think the other thing that's throwing me here is I, I, I was sort of joking, I was sort of locking onto a lot of the, the war games of this of, of this period uh you know games that are just they're not real they're not they're certainly not trying to keep pace nor, nor should they have been trying to keep pace with general trends in gaming but i think the other thing that maybe causes me to underrate 1994 just a little bit here is that a lot of strategy gaming's big successes um from this year end up kind of proving to be a little bit 
like cul-de-sacs, I guess. Uh, like I know what game you're transitioning to here. So Panzer Sorry. General. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could have gone with Master of Magic. I was thinking he was going to Master of Magic with that one, but I think it can be applied uh, equally yeah, well. No. I think both are fair. But, so my point about Panzer General is Panzer General it kind of cast this long shadow over war gamers at least because for years there's this idea that like hey war games are in panzer general remember when panzer general was like the game of its mm-hmm. year and yes. everyone was playing panzer general because again in this era if you're a pc gamer you play pc games doesn't matter what they are in general you're you're kind of playing a, a stuff from a lot of different genres like there's just not many of them so you end up playing a lot of stuff that maybe wouldn't normally be your cup of tea panzer general legitimately uh you know sort of groundbreaking game in some ways uh it, it presents the best of hex-based war games but in a really simple and gorgeous and accessible package and it kind of appears it, it presents what appears to be a roadmap for war games to make it out of this uh, market expansion, this sort of growing, the, the sort of uh, growth of gaming from a small niche hobby to something slightly larger and more mainstream, um, and it ends up not working out, right? Because Panzer General, to an extent, proves to not really lead anywhere. And there have been a lot of good iterations on it. There have been a lot of good like Panzer General inspired games. Or Panzer General Two, mm-hmm. which we talked about in '97 or '98, and I love. Right, it's, yeah. I mean, that's genuinely the best of the series. Uh, but at the same time, like throughout the '90s, we will be getting different, you know, blank general games, uh, and then the decades to come, we we get things like uh, you know Panzer Corps and such. But uh, we also get Unity of Command. Mm. That ain't so bad. Uh, yeah, Unity of Command feels... It, it's got enough differences that it feels fresh. It but does. It, I do yeah. think it's a fairy Panzer General. Yeah. 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 Sort of see it, yeah. I think its focus on supply distinguishes it, honestly. like mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Panzer General is just about, like, you know, smash this unit with this unit and, and, and see what happens. Like, Panzer General cuts out a lot of, like, the log- logistical crap and... Uh, is just hey, isn't it fun to push this tank over this this infantry unit? And it is fun. And it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Yeah. But it proves to be a very a more limited type of fun than it appears. And as we return to that well again and again over the years, eventually Panzer General goes from something that feels fresh to being like when when you're seeing screenshots of a game that's mimicking Panzer General. You see it, and immediately you're you're, you're kind of like, yeah, I probably don't need to check that out. Been there, done that. Uh, and when they like tried to systematize the idea in like Star General, it was just a disaster. Uh, it only works when you have these like created levels that are yeah. designed to be as fun as possible, and that's that's a very limited thing, especially because over the course of uh, the decade, what becomes useful for game designers, because games get so big, are repeatable ideas they can use over and over. Um, I forgot to add, and I can't believe I did this, Elder Scrolls Arena to this mm-hmm. list, but Elder Scrolls Arena is like the first late 90s PC RPG, and that's in large part because it created a huge world with reused assets over and over, and it was only when games either had the... Uh, 
willingness to do that as with fallout and the elder scrolls and so on or with Baldur's gate where they were or with rpgs uh or with Baldur's gate where they were just like no we're going to paint every single one of these fucking maps and you're gonna like it uh that's when RPGs made a comeback. But when they were trying to make that transition, it didn't really work. And that's, this goes with Panzer General because like only the level designed ones really work. Panzer General does. Panzer General 2 does. Fantasy General, I believe, does. Uh, I think that's next year. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult thing to kind of um, industrialize, which is what games become in this time. Well, yeah, I think that industrialization point is a really important one because I think, right, I think there's a lot, there's a huge amount of transition going on at this time. And 1994 is sort of a focal point of that, right? 1994, 95 was the year where the PlayStation released in North America, but 94 is the year it released in Japan um, and kind of began to transition to this thing that people were paying attention to. I looked it up a few minutes ago, also another 94. 1994 was the year that 3DFX became a company and began leading to what would be a 96 release of their voodoo card right there were and we talked about like the sound cards we talked about the way that that cd-rom technology was working into we we talked about the the amp up from windows 3.1 and 3. whatevers to windows 95 and so i think there's a lot of this you know oh you know strategy games hit a, a, you know a bump in the road and rpgs hit a bump in the road but really i think a lot of that goes to this idea and right Pagan speaks to this. Wing Commander 3 speaks to this. These big companies looking to industrialize gaming in a way that it had not been before, where games like Panzer General, where games like even, you know, arguably something like Jagged Alliance and um, some of these other kind of core PC games um, took backseat for a while because the industry was going through this huge sort of modernization like by 1998 1999 the video game industry looks more like it does today i think than it does just what it looked like a few years before all right i i once i'm pretty sure i mentioned this over like with the one of the first 1990x podcasts we did was i was once trying to write a book on like how this decade worked by genre with the core thesis that basically every genre that we still play was invented in the 1990s there are only like one or two sub sub genres but between like 92 and 98 you have you know everything that we do now with only a few stragglers like you know rhythm games and touchscreen games and that kind of thing minecraft um, didn't exa- exist in 90s like or did it would you? Oh, no. I'm going to lead you off track. Ignore it. Pretend like I didn't say that. And you go back to what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that this this idea that, uh, you know, it, it's also the idea that a bunch of the genres that were played between 1980 or so and 94, which existed pretty strongly throughout that, died off or got changed in significant fashion. And to go back to war games and Panzer General, um, War games, more than strategy games, were considered, like, there wasn't really a distinction between strategy and war games through the 80s. It's only when Civilization comes out and there starts being these strategic-minded games that are not entirely built around war, but maybe might have some war in them, that you start getting this stronger distinction with 4X games and so on. Um, but the idea that the war game is one of the core genres with the adventure game, with the role-playing game, uh, 
is kind of baked into the idea of PC gaming, and this is part of the reason the Panzer General made such a huge splash, was that it was a war game that was not like you're playing a spreadsheet. This was a war game that seemed to be taking that genre into the next era of what it would be in the way that Doom had done with action games, or the way that Wing Commander was doing with um, space games, in the way that System Shock was doing out of nowhere. We haven't mentioned that yeah, one Yeah, I haven't brought that one um, up yet. And uh, it just ended up not quite being right. But for a long time, as Rob said, that specter kind of hung over. Will this be the Panzer General of whatever year? Will this be the war game that breaks through? And I think, you know, the genre might have become healthier once it realized that that was pretty unlikely and they should just focus on making really good war games and creating, you know, sustainable business habits that way. It's interesting, by the way, there's there's two things I had to check here, because I, I remember them being from this year. It turns out I'm right. So I do remember two things that I don't think are on this list that are important to cite. Uh, so the first is that, like, speaking of war games that I don't think got a lot of attention, but provide interesting paths not taken... Uh, First of all, I think there's just a general problem in strategy games discussion that like Koei Tecmo games tend to be sort of hived off from the discussion, kind of kind of siloed off because they have their own. Uh, Rob listened to our Three Kingdoms show and got excited. Uh, I, I did, I did very much so. By the way, the um, that that show also includes uh, the immortal line uh, that I forget who it was. The Wu, uh, their big problem is they're allergic to arrows. <laughs> yeah, that was Brian. Uh, yeah, that yeah, Brian. Brian has a number of uh, bamo uh, uh, when it comes to when it, when it comes to uh, the the various families and dynasties of the uh, Three Kings period. But so I think we often think about like okay, the Nobunaga's ambition games, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games, 1994, Koei Tecmo releases Liberty or Death. Which is their American Revolutionary War game. I played that, I think. Yes, and here is the thing. I don't know how it like I like I would argue this ends up being one of the better like electronic treatments of the American Revolution ever made. No, I don't think I played this one. I played one that was a little more board gamey. Go on. Yeah, because so basically like it is the thing that I think probably made it hard for people to get into. Certainly this kind of broke my brain as a kid is that it is a game that sort of captures how sprawling this conflict is and yet how scrappy the forces you actually have available to wage these wars really are. And so Liberty of Death is a tricky game to play because it is a game really about kind of wrestling with a strategic incoherence that is inherent to the conflict, right? That like it is a it is a war of uh, expeditions that are way too small for the scale of the, ta- the task they are undertaking, just crawling endlessly, snail-like, uh, into the backcountry of uh, you know the eastern seaboard, and. It's like I, I I would love to know more about like the the actual making of the game, uh, but I remember being really impressed with uh, you know, for instance, the way I basically ended up 
uh, recreating Burgoyne's disastrous campaign that ended at Saratoga. Uh, I, I fucked up in the exact same way. Uh, sent, like basically I had this brilliant idea of damn like things are really difficult around Boston and there's a lot of resistance around New York but I bet I can just send uh, you know a British army down through upstate New York where there's no where there's no American troops and that's gonna work brilliantly and I basically just sent this I just had this this group slogging through the worst terrain possible. They got ambushed by you know a, a, a pretty tiny scratch force of Americans and obliterated. Um, and it was like it should have been predictable, but it was it was a weird thing because I think there is a tendency in representations of this conflict to make them feel more coherent and easier to get a handle on intellectually than they were for anyone at the time, right? Like a thing that everyone is wrestling with in this period is that the distances are always like the distances are always harder than you imagine they're going to be. The infrastructure is less developed than you imagine it's going to be. Um, your, your needs for the campaign are going to be higher uh, than you think. This is a game that really brings that out. And even though you, even if you know that, uh, it is a game where you can end up kind of being surprised uh, by obvious facts like, damn, uh, you know, <laughs> upstate New York turns out to be a difficult place to move an army. <laughs> so I'm looking this up, and it looks like this might have actually been 1993, but it the SNES was 94, but we didn't talk about it in the 93 show, so I, it's great that you talked about it. And uh, the designer is Stieg Hedlund, who went on to be a lead designer on Diablo and Diablo 2. So this is... Oh, shit. That's interesting. Wow. Interesting. Kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that is... Yeah, and I always sort of wondered about it. I guess I always imagined it as... Uh, you know, it's a Japanese studio. I always imagined it yeah. as being like... What, like, how did a group of like Japanese strategy game designers get this into the American revolution where like, I was surprised how far, like how many individual commanders were modeled in this game. Like people who like have a bit part in history are like characters in this game. Uh, and that always, that always sort of blew me away. The other thing I'll cite here, uh, is sort of a road not taken is sort of an, a, an alternative to the Panzer general model. Uh, perfect general too is a game from this oh. period, which hmm. adopts kind of a different sort of radical simplicity, uh, which is that basically <laughs> Perfect General 2's thesis <laughs> to be maybe excessively reductive is that war actually doesn't change that much. That every war <laughs> every war has its equivalent of the elephant tank, right? Like if there's if there's tanks in a war, there's going to be some giant fuck off indestructible tank of that era. There's going to be a lighter like that's kind of its insight is that artillery is artillery, uh, you know, infantry is infantry. There are a few technologies that are introduced that fundamentally change the paradigm, but by and large, you can sort of normalize it for each period by sticking to these archetypes. And then what becomes interesting is just the geography and tactical layout of a battle. And you don't need to get so hung up on the minutia of who is doing what, what their equipment is, etc. And my suspicion is that ends up being the series downfall because, boy, are you making the wrong assumptions about what war gamers care about? Uh, but but also, 
it ended up being, I actually do think it was largely a successful experiment at providing uh, a bit like the operational art of war, one of like a system that seemed endlessly adaptable to different like signature battles. The other thing is it had a vicious AI that could really surprise you in this period. Yeah. I, I remember enjoying, I'm pretty sure I played two more than one, but there's, yeah, these were just really good, solid strategy games, but because they didn't have that theming, it was like, okay, what more is there here? Um, and I think what really the, the road not taken here ends up being, because uh, I was wondering what happened to QQP, and apparently they got bought out the next year and just shut down, like, out of nowhere. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's the business aspect of, like, it becomes a lot harder in the mid-90s for you to be a developer and self-publisher. Uh, you generally yeah. need to have a big publisher. And a lot of these big publishers or these corporations that aren't even publishers but are just buying game companies because they think there's a lot of money on them are just screwing you over. That's what happens to Sierra. Mm -hmm. Sierra gets bought by one company who just kicks them up to some other French company that's like, what the fuck's a computer game? Bye. <laughs> and uh -huh. And so Sierra goes from being like one of the most trustworthy brands in computer games to one of the least trustworthy brands in about like two and a half years. It's incredible. Uh, but yeah, uh, QQP did a few of my favorite like semi war games, semi computer games, like or semi uh, strategy games like Conquered Kingdoms and Perfect General. So let's get into Master Magic a little bit. We've sort of danced around yeah, it a couple times, but uh, that's that's the last big one I think yeah, we need to do yeah. here. Unless we have really detailed Warcraft stuff, but no, I mean like Warcraft it was, was cool. A, was a great taste for what would be really cool in Warcraft too. Uh, Master of Magic. You mean three? But yes. <laughs> uh, uh, well, Rowan, looks like Joe another hour. Pack in people, because you know um, I loved Master of Magic, but I I can. It's not a game that I could go back and play it like that's the consistent theme here with a lot of these games too right i love xcom i tried to go back and play it i just i can't anymore um but master of magic was the transition for me because i'd kind of been an rpg player for a long time like ultima i played all the ultimas up through ultimate and even ultima 9 like i'd i'd, I'd never been sort of the jrpg but like the the kind of the the gold box editions ad and d stuff like that um those were all those was my core game and this was the game this was the first game that gave me sort of a power over a kingdom in this really really cool way right i mean it's you know the 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 tile sets are very simply simple now, but that that moment of kind of collecting spells or buying spells, or learning spells, and then having these other sort of competing wizards like that was that was just kind of mind blowing for me at the time. It was a whole new way of looking at this um, this environment and this playstyle and this kind of aesthetic that I had come to love through very very specific storytelling methods. And like you were saying about XCOM. Um, and, and XCOM does it much better, but it, the ability of a game to create a, uh, foundation for me to play in and create a story that was interesting to me and dynamic. And I could kind of choose the direction things went in. Um, that was, that was amazing. And master magic. I have, I have just a, it's sort of a core love for that game. Um, for that reason, it was the first game that I ever 
that I ever had that experience with. And it was, it was so cool. And what was a huge bummer about it for me at the time was, so I mentioned, like I played, I played these games, uh, you know, things like Ultima eight and stuff like that. Um, I played that during the summer when I was at home, um, master magic, uh, I didn't get exposed to until I was back at school and I didn't even have a PC. So I'd like go over to the next, like two rooms down in my dorm at the guy who, the guy on the floor who had a computer. Um, and he'd let me kind of come in and, and hang out and, and, and we'd play sometimes. And I remember a couple of nights where I was just like hung out in his room after he'd gone to sleep. And he's just like, it's fine. Just play, you know, and I'd, I'd sit there and play master magic in some some dude's room two down two doors down from mine till like three in the morning that's what college is for huh what that's what college is it was so good it is it is one of my great great memories and i'd be like oh man i should play more of whatever kind of game this is (laughs) i yeah it's uh, it i i i have i have just like i don't have a lot to say about the mechanics of it because it just right like when i think about what strategy games have become i embrace what that is much much more than this and i have gotten to a place where i don't go back and revisit games very often um but i like i was just watching some videos of of people playing master magic before we got on it just it sort of exploded with nostalgia in my mind so i i have a very sort of personal feeling about it less you know sort of the mechanical way it, it you know uh, the the systems and all that like i just i look at it and it's just like looking at a photo um from you know you know high school and it, so I, I i love i absolutely love that game for no concretely good reason except it was the game that led me into this well, well this sort of goes back to what i was saying about like how the idea of the strategy game is distinct from the war game was happening in this era where civilization comes out and it starts being like you can model anything in a game you can model the entirety of human history and it can be a blast and then master of orion comes out and it's like okay we can do this in other genres we can do space fantasy is the next inevitable step master of magic comes out and it does this well like i don't know that it is the greatest but it is this proof of concept that the idea of the strategy game can be used and applied in pretty much any genre that you might want um like when i think about this game mechanically i think like yeah there's a tactical combat component to it that is kind of a slog um was this the this one introduced like this one had like this whole dark world thing right there were two worlds, like one where magic was a lot stronger and it was darker and stuff. That feels right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that so. was there. Yes. Um, and I never quite clicked with that. And like the AI was famously terrible, like most of the strategy games of the era. And I think we that is really kind of good, Rowan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, there was. Um, uh, you just distracted me. Oh, yeah. The, there's a thing that fantasy games have where, uh, or fantasy strategy games specifically, where they always seem to be more on rails. Like Master of Magic, you're like building towards built, casting the spell that will end the game, which is like a more linear than systemic kind of action. But just in terms of like, here's a whole bunch of cool fantasy shit that we've like put in a world that makes it make sense like it's not just throwing things at the wall it's like 
there's reason for orcs and golems and whatever to all be in this shit and like all the art style kind of is smoothed out in a way that makes it aesthetically pleasing the music was great um i remember the intro being fantastic uh it had a whole bunch of like semi RPG stuff that a lot of like fantasy strategy games have had, but it did it in like a way that seemed to be a step above everything else. Like you could find magical items in Warlords too. I love Warlords. Uh, but when you found them in Master of Magic, they had like individual icons and they could be named. And one of them was named after a Doom cheat code. And that was the coolest thing that 13 year old <laughs> Rowan had ever fucking seen. Um, but, like, as you say, a lot of these games from this era are particularly hard to go back to, and I think some of that is just resolution. Like, some of it yeah. is the, the mouse interface, because, like, other than Ultima 7, not all of them had figured out how to do mice quite right. They were still half-based on keyboard, half-based on mouse, and not entirely sure what they wanted. But also, it's just so small and tiny and difficult to get like all the information you want on the screen that you expect on the screen from a strategy game. Um, and yeah, that, that makes Master of Magic and the original Master of Orion difficult for me to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I prefer the original Master of Orion to Master of Orion 2, but just because of those graphical things that a lot of these games have that Lords of the Realm has, which I would like to talk about in a second. And, you know, the original Warcraft, Jagged Alliance to some extent. Yeah, it's just kind of hard to get to that level of, like, control and understanding over what I'm seeing or even just using all my monitor in the right way. It feels kind of wrong. Um, and that's that's kind of sad because these are great games and Master of Orion or Master of Magic didn't receive a proper sequel like Master of Orion did. Like there are some successors that I am fond of, like Fallen Enchantress was quite good. Uh, the Age of Wonders games were quite good, which I believe we will get to in '99 when we do that. Uh, but yeah, the in terms of just being that like ur strategy game for fantasy, Master of Magic never quite got the next step that mm-hmm. I might have hoped for. Did you ever play it, Rob? Uh, only a little bit. It did not. But by the time I came to it, I think it was in that it was difficult to get into window. Like yeah, I kind of right. got it, but yeah. it didn't. Uh, it, it didn't sort of capture my interest much. Um, I think speaking of things that are weirdly hard to get into, I mean, partly for presentation issues, but again, also partly because so like there's a lot of new ideas being thrown around that there's not yet any conventions for governing uh you mentioned it a moment ago system shock is a yes. fascinating game because in a lot of ways it is what we would call an immersive sim it is one of the first uh you know major immersive sims kind of a foundational text the weird thing uh, one of the many weird things about it is that where a lot of immersive sims have basically borrowed their whole playbook from from Thief, uh, which came a few years later, also from Looking Glass, uh, System Shock really is much more. It 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 takes a much more. Uh, what's the way to put this? Sim, like simulational approach to being a person on a spaceship. And what I mean by that is, like, literally this is a game where uh, 
basically you have nine postures you can adopt at any given moment. Like you can be all the way prone and leaning to one side or the other, or you can be like fully stood up and also leaning once like everything is, uh, has a kind of a weird design convention associated with it. Uh, it is a first person game that still in a lot of like in a lot of key areas you are kind of meant to interact with it by sort of freezing the frame and then moving your cursor around within it almost as if it's like an adventure game you can sort of activate an adventure game mode in any given at any moment in the game it is a strange thing it also in its ambition has sort of a flexibility and uh like simulational fidelity for evoking its space that a lot of games that came later don't really ever attempt to reproduce, right? That increasingly they like, you know, the, the genre kind of moves to becoming what we see now with like a, a dishonored or a prey, uh, where basically the, what it has been distilled to is it is a stealth game where you have a lot of like AI actors walking around the stage and your job is to avoid them and sort of scope out what's happening in a scene. Uh, and it also uses the interface of the conventional first person shooter. Yes. Yeah. Um, System Shock really is trying to keep you at a remove from your physical self in the game, but also make you also give you a lot more places for you to interact with the world and explore uh, the actual technology and machinery of the space station. I could never quite click with it. I, I got to it a few years later, and it's it, it has that interface and uh, resolution issue that um, maybe I should check out the, the redone version that's supposed to at least deal with like making it shinier, but I have not quite done that yet. Yeah, I, I had I had the same sort of problem. Like I played System Shock One, tried to play System Shock One after playing System Shock Two, and it's right. It's it's very fundamentally different for a, a variety of reasons. So I mean, I, it, it's it's one I wish I had played at the time that it came out because by the time I got to it, I just I couldn't appreciate it, which is unfortunate. But it, it, I mean, part of it is is what you're talking about, right? It's it's. There's no immediate analog to playing this game. It doesn't immediately sort of make sense because it's like, oh, I can pull, you know, this context and this context and this context out of it and understand what I'm doing. I'm sort of like, well, wait, what? I'm dragging, like, how am I not even, how am I moving? Like, it just, it, it part of it is also that element of, like we were talking about before, we get to a place around 95 or 96 where everybody's agreed on how a mouse works and how a screen works when you're using a mouse to manipulate the environment. And System Shock is a relic of an era, I think, that didn't understand that as a sort of foundational language. So you get something really unique and interesting in the way that you are sort of moving back and forth out of the world into these moments where it's frozen and you're interacting and then you step back in the world and it's moving around again. Um, but it felt it felt weirdly alien, which is cool, but also like not. <laughs> yeah, it, it's cool if you're willing to commit to yes. that. And yes. You're more willing to commit to that if you're buying that game in 1994. Yes. Um, speaking of committing to conventions of using the mouse, this is, I think, 
what makes Warcraft one of the most important games in strategy gaming and just general yeah. PC gaming history is that you get this commitment by Blizzard to this particularly particular form of mouse use where right click means move left click means select and click and drag means like you can group a bunch of things together and even though it was only four things in warcraft and that wasn't like anywhere nearly enough to anyone who's ever played a real-time strategy game since you can see that kind of uh interface simplicity and streamlining that would define blizzard throughout their history until the last few years at least uh like say this is a game that is going to redefine one particular part of games it's a generic fantasy game it's a fairly functional real-time strategy game in a lot of ways but the interface that it does and blizzard commits to and everyone following blizzard commits to becomes a dominant force for just how we interact with computers in general nowadays um can I'll just shout out real quick here because I think it is sort of again like foundational work. Um, Aces of the Deep is mm-hmm. a game. Yeah, I was wondering if I should add that to this list, <laughs> and I was like, Rob will have played this and have opinions <laughs> on it. Yeah, and I think my my short version it's it's been ages uh, since since I played this game at all seriously. Um, I I always sort of felt like Aces of the Deep is the game that launched a thousand imitators. Uh, you know, Aces of the Deep. It's a it's a sub sim. It's 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 a U boat sim, and one of the things that really sets it apart is that it is trying to really evoke the World War II sub movie. Right, it is really trying to give you that sense of there is a physical space that you are navigating. Uh, you know, one of the ways that you would go from system to system on your submarine was by sort of returning to the um, sort of pre-rendered like pixel art uh, graphics of the interior of the sub and like click on different things and uh, interact with them. This is all a model that would be used again and again in sub simulations. Um, and I think where Aces of the Deep probably just ends up, I think the the trouble for a game like Aces of the Deep is that it is surpassed, right? Like they're like in the coming years, you would see that same basic game done and again and again, and each time, unlike with Panzer General, each time it would in general be a profoundly different and improved experience, uh, making it unnecessary to go back to aces of the deep um, and that's just a general issue with fidelity as one of your main goals too. yeah yeah and, and like uh yeah exactly so like things like in aces of the deep you, you can go to the top of the conning tower and like look around the the 3d ocean around you it looks really cool well by the time you get to like silent hunter 3 that stuff will look unbelievably good uh and you know that there's just no comparing the two also you start getting into uh i don't think aces of the deep had a full dynamic campaign it had really big missions you could go on but i want to say it didn't have uh sort of the dynamic campaign that would become the hallmark of a lot of later sub sims uh well sims and dynamic cam- campaigns in general is uh is a whole different thing the notion that 
you know, you should somehow be able to captain a U-boat and change the course of World War II is absurd. But for some reason, we all convinced ourselves that, like, yeah, that is a thing that should <laughs> should be. We want the Nazis to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also this also this larger quest for meaning in sim games that I don't think was yes. a bigger was a giant issue in 1994, but throughout the 90s there was kind of this. We didn't talk about Panzer General being a Nazi-only game at all. <laughs> oh, shit. God, that's right. <laughs> check, check your privilege, 3MA. <laughs> uh, look, they got around to making the vastly less popular Allied General. Um, and Panzer General II, which is better all around, had campaigns yes. for the Nazis, the British, the Americans, and the Russians. Um. But yeah, I, I think with with, uh, with Sims throughout this era, you started to see them wrestling with the notion that people wanted, A, the endless fun of not just preset missions, but uh, things that would be generated dynamically, but also then it would all have meaning in a larger campaign, and your actions in a mission would affect what came later. The problem being that, like, that's not really reasonable for a game where you are, like, one fighter pilot or one sub-captain. But it becomes an obsession uh, in the space and uh, sort of the the inspiration for a thousand misguided developments. Uh, Rowan, you, you mentioned you wanted to get to Lord of the Realm. Lords of the Realm, yeah. which is interesting because... Lords of the Realm 1 is the one that I've always sort of felt doesn't fit with the rest. Yeah, that's because it's actually good. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting towards the shout-outs now. This one's fairly simple. Um, Lords of the Realm was uh, an economic strategy game primarily, and that's the thing that sets it apart from its successors, which are leaning into the RTS and the RTS conventions, particularly in terms of combat, more. The original Lords of the Realm, uh, Lords of the Realm was a game where you played a random lord in a sort of idealized medieval England and slowly attempted to take it over. Um, on the CD version, which is the one I had, there was also a map of Germany, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the English one was generally more fun, I think. But uh, what always set it apart to me and what I always had fun with in the initial several turns, I almost never got into the mid game, let alone the end game, was just it was very difficult to have enough food to keep your people alive and be ready to expand. And when you expanded, you generally expanded into places that didn't quite have enough food and all you were doing throughout the game that i actually had fun with was trying to make sure that you had enough food and you had the money in order to supply the food and deal with famines and all these things and there was like a little bit of a military sim or not sim but a little bit of a you know war game military aspect uh that i think actually used the engine from that napoleon game you loved rob oh no shit yeah, it was the something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was like that. Um, but like, the game was really fun in the first dozen or two dozen turns, where you were kind of just setting out what you were building and getting your fields in order, clearing all the rocks, deciding if this was going to be your cow town or your grain town or your sheep town. Uh, hoping that that merchant would come to you so you could actually buy the weapons to use to 
be able to fight in anything except for your peasant army. Um, I just generally had a good time with the economic aspect of it. And I think that became like a direction that games like imperialism would go later. Uh, Just that there is war involved. Yes. But the kind of foundational economic aspect of it, you could even say hearts of iron is like that a little bit or Hearts of iron four, although it gets really intricate in the military if you want it to, but uh, you just need that economic basis that you're building from. And I thought that was it direction in strategy games that was not really one that was uh, a path that had been uh, developed at that point. And uh, maybe that's always going to be a small niche, but Lords of the Realm was always a niche that I liked. If we're kind of stepping into the world of shout outs for a second. Um, yeah. I have like six other things to give 10 oh, seconds to. Yeah. <laughs> Mine, mine's 10 seconds because uh, 1994, so 1995 is the year I met my, my wife. And uh, she's uh, at the time, she was a designer, um, which been, by the end of 95, I was living in uh, a Mac-only world. So a quick shout out to Marathon, where Bungie oh, became yeah. a thing. Because that, like if you didn't have a PC, but you wanted to do a first-person shooter, turns out there was a really good one available to you. Um, um, one there was exa- that was it that was it. <laughs> you could play warcraft warcraft 2 and you could play marathon and that that was your that was your mac gaming experience but um for 94 that's a pretty damn good game rob shout out uh i'm good all right <laughs> rowan shout out so if you would ever like to know an extremely specific rowan story and, and uh, not only did I play the shit out of NASCAR racing, I modded the shit out of it to the point where I created a car that had a Vorlon skin from Babylon <gasps> 5. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's, that is so on brand. In just, well, that is the, the most on brand thing that I have. Like, I probably should have ended with that one because everything is going to be a disappointment. But shout out to Magic Carpet, the Magic only Carpet bullfrog game that was as weird and cool as they said it was supposed to be instead of just being like a filed down genre bullshit three years later. Um, shout out to Wolf. This was a game where you played a wolf in a simulation of nature. You had to like mate and find food and poop. And that was just the weirdest fucking thing. And it was really interesting and cool. Shout out to Jazz Jackrabbit, Cliffy B, putting out a 2D platformer on PC to compete with Sonic and Mario and actually having it be good. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Doom 2 for being fucking Doom 2. Doom 2. It's Doom 2, right, yeah. Yeah, like, like whatever. And uh, random shout-out, since I, we've talked about RPGs a fair amount here, SSI was like in the process of like slow collapse. They were done with their gold box games, and they didn't really know what to do. Um, they put out two really interesting and weird D&D-based RPGs. One is al the Genie's Curse, which was like a Zelda-style, or maybe more Secret of Mana-style uh action rpg and the rpg was like super light it was more of a puzzle thing a console style game on pc that actually ended up quite fun and then there was ravenloft which was an attempt at a party based three-dimensional like full movement rpg uh in their like sort of uh dracula inspired uh world that 
was really interesting and kind of a failure, but I at least enjoyed like their attempt to make D and D not just be generic fantasy, uh, really slow tactical combat bullshit. <coughs> I do have a shout out, real quick. Under Killing Moon, uh, again, look, not a very good adventure game, but charming. Pandora Directive is probably the best that series uh, ever got. Probably put, put the best was the best use of FMV and there's there's sort of uh, photorealistic 3D models but also shout out to Under Killing Moon for uh, teaching me how easy credit cro- credit card fraud could be uh, fantastic <laughs> oh shout out to the level at the Lion King game where you are running away from the wildebeest herd fuck that oh shit. my god no fuck that wildebeest level that was the worst yeah Mufasa's like I yeah got- same I got, I got nothing yeah. left. That's, yeah, I don't even want to remember that. Why'd you bring that up? That is, that is a tough level. Uh, <laughs> it was at thirteen. Like when I like did it on emulation later, where I can load and save state. It was super easy to memorize. But when you have to go through the entire game to get back to it, yeah, fuck that level. And Scar is just a terrible AI companion. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Uh, also, shout out to Donkey Kong Country uh, yeah, for really sure. making me convinced that somehow unlocked a new lo- new tier of graphics for the SNES via silicon graphics, which probably was overstated. Nevertheless, a cool platformer that I really enjoyed and convinced. And I the the illusion of technological progress brought me through the door, but uh, you know the minecart levels kept me there. <laughs> All right, All right. So awards. Yeah, let's get let's let's get through this. Uh yeah, let's finish the fucker off. Yeah, let's All right. This this one should be pretty easy. All right, yeah, yeah. sure. It's uh, a limited number of options. Of this year, best management or city builder. Um does Outpost win this by default? I, uh, I mean Transport Tycoon probably wins that I by know. default by not being outpost. <laughs> Can we just but get into SimCity argue- 2000 and just say... Yeah, oh, well, let's come to SimCity 2000 again. Yeah. <laughs> fair. Just, there's, nothing, you know, was, there's nothing else that was competing. Nobody else showed up, so it won sort you, of... You, you could maybe make the argument, if you really wanted, that colonization is a little more management-oriented and a little less 4X. Oh, uh, yeah. But... That's that's as far as I would go with that. We like in seriousness, we should probably said like Transport Tycoon was an important tycoon game. Um, did did any of us play it? I didn't. I barely played it. No. All like, right, but you're ahead of the rest of us, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't. The problem is, like, I can't actually make a strong enough case for it. SimCity 2000, a great game. Yeah. We love it. Uh, just the really the 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 city manager of of its era of the early nineties, uh, best war game. So we didn't mention some of the ones that I found: uh, Operation Crusader, The Grandest Fleet, Fleet Commander Two, and Tigers on the Prowl. And for I don't good know if reason. any of us played them or care about that. Well, Tigers on the Prowl, I think, managed to keep a reputation for a while. Maybe it was just that it had like the coolest name that a war game has ever had, but uh, yeah. Just to mention some other war games that existed, so sure. that this isn't merely given to Panzer General by default. Well, mm, there was an interesting statement made earlier about XCOM being a war game that 
I'm, I'm <laughs> thinking about, but I still like it's got to be Panzer it, General. I'm 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 gonna go ahead and put my put my check mark down on Panzer General. Wait, well, I didn't win anyone over with Liberty or Death or Perfect General. I didn't play it. I didn't. I didn't play it. Well, Liberty or Death seemed to be ninety three. So also that. Well, we just gave one well, to yeah. SimCity, so who knows what? <laughs> there are right. no rules Panzer anymore. General. Uh, Panzer General. I, I mean, I like Perfect General. Panzer General was definitely a better game. That's fine. Best grand strategy. That's got to be Master of Magic, right? Unless you really want to go with colonization, like Lords of the Realm, I enjoy as well. But I think Master of Magic was probably more generally influential. It's definitely the one that I can like imagine as being an ideal game in a way that Lords of the Realm was just kind of a neat thing. Um, and Master of Magic really captured the imagination, even if it wasn't quite as long as I would have hoped after Orion and Civ. Are y'all hearing the thunderstorm, by the way, happening behind me? No. No, but I'm jealous. Amazing. Yeah, that, that would make this extra dramatic. That sounds awesome. I wish you'd yeah. turn it up. Um, best RTS. I mean, that kind of goes in Warcraft? a default thing, like, right? It's just, it's just Warcraft, like for all the reasons we mentioned before. So just a side note for people who have listened to all these episodes, I did not fully go through all the lists that I could have in order to create this list, so we might be totally forgetting something. Like, I didn't have Arena on this. That's a fantastic game. I didn't have Perfect General, which is a relevant strategy game. So there might be something that we're missing, but it's I had the wrong year for Liberty or Death. Uh, Well, Wikipedia only has 94 on the side, but... It has 93 in the text, so... Weird. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, best strategy game. This one's easy, right? Or best tactics. XCOM, so... Yeah. Yeah. Best tactics, unless someone really fucking loves Jagged Alliance, would be XCOM. And then best overall... Best game of this whole year. Well, but, okay, so best, best strategy game overall would be XCOM. Yeah. Like, is there any argument against that even with the difficulty bug so wait, like, if we're giving xcom best strategy what would you say for tactics no xcom it's, is it's tactics. both it's, it's and then yeah. strategy as the overarching umbrella for all the things that we just gave okay with me yeah i'm still so, XCOM, yeah best of the awards we just gave like i i just can't make an argument for anything except xcom and the best game overall yeah well best non-strategy game I have to go with Final Fantasy VI. Like, I respect TIE Fighter a ton. It's a game I like a lot. Um, Doom 2, obviously tremendous. Uh, But Final Fantasy VI is, like, one of the three best JRPGs ever made. One of the six best RPGs ever made. Um, One of the best soundtracks. Tremendous, like, plot surprise at a level that you would just not expect any kind of game from this era to have uh yeah i just it's still one of the best games ever i i cannot pick anything but that let me change your mind here okay <laughs> are you With going to the scene where we introduce major key maniac and <laughs> oh no oh, we got a prophecy I, shit that looks way no, too good that's not the same yeah that's it's, not that's not the same one I do love Prophecy. Prophecy's, I know Prophecy's that's way better than three. I know that's apparently a rare opinion no, of Wing right. Commander fans, I but I am extremely pro-Prophecy. 
Um, I've always liked the decisions they made later in that series with like Admiral Talwin turning into uh, like a fascist, like basically yeah, like a, guy. Yep. Yeah. Like take away his reason for being, <laughs> yeah. and he's like, no, I just you know I need a new war to fight. Uh, yeah, I'm into that. All right. Um, we we should apparently just have a three of a wing commander series. We, we should, uh, Sean. Here's the thing. We can still overrule Rowan. I mean, by just saying TIE Fighter at the same yeah. time? Yeah. Okay. I mean, do you want to count Side it down? Note. <laughs> Side note, we haven't mentioned Super Metroid, which is a game that people love. I love Final Fantasy VI it didn't more. Run on Super my Metroid Genesis. is a game It didn't that's... run on my Genesis at all. Like, I tried <laughs> right. several times. It just would not even go in right. the slot. It's, it's just a game that we should toss out yes. as having been from this year and being a potential contender yes. for this category correct that none of us are not. going to pick. Yes. And it's just a shame that it's never been imitated in all the years <laughs> since then. Um, that nobody's ever made uh, an action platformer exploration game where you have to uh, acquire new weapons to unlock new doors. Um, or backtrack in any way. Yeah, coming it's... in strong with the sarcasm at the end of the episode. I think you've really, <laughs> like, you've been holding that one in your pocket to show us how it's done. My heart says, I think my head and my heart say, I think Final Fantasy VI kind of sucks after the turn. I think the problem with Final Fantasy VI is it's an amazing RPG, and then Kafka does his thing, and then it fucking sucks. I, you know, I've heard that argument before, and maybe it's because I played it with a guide, so I was, like, doing it in order to accomplish specific things that you can do that, like, gave me that motivation that other people found lacking. So, that, that would be my guess for why I still love even the second half, but I, I get why you might not. Sean, what do you think? I mean, it's TIE Fighter. It's Tie Fighter. <laughs> like I, just, I don't even know. I, and and the funny thing is, I didn't even play it in '94. I played it a couple of years later, and just like not even the CD version. Like I got a hold of the old classic version because my dad still had his old stupid computer, and I played it for an entire summer, and I loved it very much. And it's a game that I still think about. Like it is, it is to me the pinnacle of the space flight sim. Like I, it just it's. To me, it's as it's as good as it gets. Like, I just I, I I loved everything about it. I loved the the flip of the concept of being in the Imperial Navy and also having to be a character that has some redeeming qualities. Um, you know, this the complexity. Like the it felt fun to fly a Tie Fighter, and the the, the battles were amazing. I just I, I have nothing but but fond memories of that game. And like I said before, like Master of Magic is the game that, that turned me into a strategy gamer, but TIE Fighter is the game of that year that turned I remember. Turned me into a fascist. It turned me... <laughs> TIE Fighter is the game that turned me into a fascist. Look, <laughs> even more than Panzer Generals. <laughs> even Look, more. The Panzer thing General people don't get about the Empire effort. is it maintains order. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, oh my the God. Mag the trades thing. run on time. Tie Fighter opens with a peacekeeping operation with the, with where a peacekeeping operation which ends with you imposing rule over both sides. It's amazing, <laughs> uh, and then Lord Vader is your wingman, uh, mm-hmm. which is also the name of, name of my memoir. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so congratulations to TIE Fighter. Uh, the, the great, the, I respect it. I'm not going to complain no, too much. Good. I just mildly disagree, but TIE Fighter is great. Yep. Uh, so that will do it uh, for this edition of Three Moves Ahead. 
Uh, as always, it is produced by Michael Hermes and is hosted in the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, Rowan, is there anything you would like to promote? You were just mentioning Us Gamer and apparently you sort of bury your beef with them. Uh, anything anything <laughs> happening in, in the it's, world? It's not of, a beef. I just think it's funny. Um, I wrote a Three Kingdoms Total War preview last week at GamesBeat that is worth checking out because it's super exciting and also super terrifying. Do you say anything as cool as anything Brian said on our show a few weeks ago? Of course not. Okay. Like Brian, Brian is special and should be like some sort of YouTube star beyond simply his cooking show. So listen to that episode because it's you know, I'm really happy how that came together. Uh. Sean, what's new in the world of Games with Jobs? I, I heard that you've been delving into uh, Dark Souls and we're really they good ma- at they it. They made me... No, well, no, yeah. So they made me play Dark Souls for six hours. We had a uh, charity stream a a few weeks ago and I have long been against Dark Souls and, and we, we reached a goal level that made me play Dark Souls. So if you want to see an old man play Dark Souls while two of his friends laugh at him, you can check us out at youtube.com slash gamerswithjobs and check out our Dark Souls video. Um, there's only 12 of them and they're, they're a drunken festival of love and hate for Dark Souls all at once. Were you against Dark Souls having played it or just no, against the idea just of Dark like Souls? Like every time somebody described it to me, I hated right, it more. Right, right. Same. Yes. Same. Just like, why are you playing that? That sounds awful. People invade your game. You're just going along, getting killed constantly. And then somebody else is like, it looks like you got to get killed again. No, this is terrible. Don't do that. High school, the game. <laughs> uh, the anyway, game. we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, uh, for Rowan. For Sean, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.